What I wanted to know is what lessons modern archers and modern hunters could learn from these things that you've learned. You know, what's been forgotten or has not quite been forgotten yet that that we could implement in uh, in our hunting today. Right. Yeah, that's a huge question I have. Um, so, how are people able to to be successful with the the simple weapons that they had available, the simple tools, and actually to be successful enough to make a living off of it? And these people were hunting for a living. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. Are you getting ready for archery season? Yeah, I am. I'm preparing my equipment for elk hunting out in Colorado. And what kind of equipment are you going to be hunting with? I've got a Cherokee bow and uh, river cane arrows and bamboo arrows. So, um, you know, Native American equipment that's kind of modified a little bit as some elements of traditional archery, modern traditional archery equipment. What are the features that make the bow Cherokee? Uh, Cherokee bows, uh, like other southeastern bows, there's there's a few different tribes in the southeast that use the same bow design, and it's um, it's pretty quintessential uh, Native American in that it's a bend to the handle or uh, working handle bow. So the the handle is actually part of the operating bow rim. It's not like a stiff ergonomic handle like we're used to. Um, so if you look at these bows, they're pretty simple. They're just like a rectangle in cross section and they taper a little bit in both width and thickness towards the tips, but not much. It's pretty much like a flat, looks like a flat slat or a flat board with a diamond shaped tips at the end. Does it have a shelf or do you shoot off your hand? You shoot off your hand. Um, it's just a, a straight rectangle all the way. So, you know, I, I think they're pretty beautiful in their simplicity. Is that what drew you to that specific type of bow? That's part of it. I, I'm interested in uh, Native American hunting equipment in general. So um, what drew me to that one is that I'm from Arkansas. I was looking for a bow that would be, um, you know, what people hunted with in Arkansas. And the Cherokee lived in Arkansas historically. Uh, they weren't there prior to uh, colonial interventions that kind of pushed them west. But um, but that's what drew me to it. Uh, I was just looking for a, a bow design that would be what people hunted with it, it back home. What type of wood is it? The wood is black locust heartwood. So the heartwood of a big black locust tree. Um, it's an extremely hard wood and it splits really nicely. So it splits out actually naturally into these like rectangular shapes. So I just imagine the historic uh, Southeastern people who had access to metal tools by that time were probably splitting several bow staves out of a single tree. And it, you know, these, it's just like a flat uh, rectangle. So you can, you can really get 
quite a few bow staves out of one tree. Man, splitting a black locust tree without modern equipment had to have been quite a task. Yeah, I mean, I do it um, probably the way they were doing it in historic times, you know, by, by the 1700s or so. They And before that, they had metal tools already. They had metal axes. So I'm doing it with, um, you know, modern axes, splitting wedges, and it is a huge task. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine so. The... The shafts, you said that they're cane. Is it a bamboo? Yeah, river cane. It's a native bamboo, native to North America, to the, the southeast in particular. Uh, it was used for all sorts of things by native people. Uh, they split it. They made baskets out of it. Uh, they used it to as the structural elements of their houses. They made flutes, just all sorts of things out of, out of uh, river cane. And it's, it's a phenomenal plant. It's unfortunately, it's, um, somewhat threatened in the Southeast due to our, our farming practices. We've cut it back a lot. Um, but you can still go, you know, you, you go to a healthy patch and it's one of these plants that you're looking at one organism right there in one patch. So if you take a few pieces out of one patch and preserve itself, it's uh, not going to damage it, but it would really be nice to see that this, uh, plant, you know, recovering to the extent that it, you know, somewhat to the extent that it was before where it had just these massive forests. And, uh, the other thing, nice thing about river cane is it's really good at filtering uh, pollutants that flow down into the river. So another good reason to restore it. Well, we can't have enough of that these days. I, I think that's what's really cleaned up Chesapeake Bay is um, all the artificial oyster reefs that they put out and the oysters coming back and they're getting fish, fish species returning to that water that they haven't seen in decades. You know, they've got tarpon in there now. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. I mean, um, you know, my dad remembered when rivers in Arkansas were just crystal clear and people wrote about that in the uh, 1700s when they were traveling through. And then after some time in the sixties, they, I think, he thought that it was uh, modern fertilizers that started really mucking them up. So, um, yeah, you know, river cane, uh, would, it gathers, I think over 90% of, of, uh, that stuff flowing off into the river. Now these shafts that you're using, do they have any kind of a taper to them? Or are they relatively even throughout the length of the shaft? They do have a taper, uh, I taper them back towards the knock of the arrow, so they're widest at the, the distal end where you would attach a foreshaft or a broadhead. Uh, it's just the natural taper of the, the cane, and some of it tapers more than others. Tell me about the broadhead that you are using. Well, I use modern broadheads of a variety of them, <laughs> what I've gotten okay. my hands on. Um, you know, it's not legal to hunt with stone, otherwise I'd be hunting with stone in Colorado. So, well, broadhead construction is something that is very, very important to me. And it's something that I end up talking about on other people's podcasts and and in news articles and stuff like that all the time. Sure. Um, I think it's the most important part of the archery system is the broadhead. Everything else is just a supporting element and the broadhead is the main effort. Um, so since you spent so much time researching, um, stone heads, surely that has influenced the way that you are choosing which 
steel broadhead you're going to use. Yeah, I did. You know, I, I followed the the trend of single bevel broadheads, um, extremely just razor sharp with a kind of a tanto tip, a chisel tip. Um, so that's primarily what I've been using. And I, I have done research on those effects on stone points because, you know, there are these uh, ancient projectile points from the Americas that are beveled like modern broadheads. So really? I, I helped, um, I did an experiment on whether those points have similar effects to the modern broadheads that are claimed for the, the modern broadheads, uh, which was a fun series of experiments. But unfortunately, they failed to to split heavy bone. Like that's claimed for the single bevel modern broadheads is that they, as they go in, since they're, they're forced to torque uh, due to those single bevels pressure against those bevels, uh, once they encounter bone, they torque and split it. And that wasn't demonstrated with the stone points, I think, because they're, they're just much thicker in cross-section. And uh, when stone encounters bone, it, it, it tends to uh, break stone and can also um, you know, bust through bone pretty well, unless you encounter really heavy bone, in which case your projectile just kind of stops dead. And so, so you know, they bust through the, the bone, but they don't really have the same kinds of effects as, as a thin uh, modern steel broadhead. What's your total arrow weight right now? Total arrow weight. I'd have to uh, weigh my arrows again. <laughs> I can't remember. Okay. It's not something that's super important to you. Uh, it is. It's something I was researching last year and uh, I've just been modeling my arrows off of the ones I was using last year. Okay. Yeah. I, I try to try to get up above 600 grains, 632 grains is, is what I'm hunting with. I'm not super picky about it. A lot of people are, are insistent upon 650 grains if they've read Dr. Ashby's stuff a little bit yeah. and haven't really gotten into it. It's kind of the easy button, but um, it definitely makes a difference to have have some more weight forward of center and, and have a good heavy arrow. Mass is certainly king when it comes to kinetic energy. Yeah, I mean, it makes your bow more effective at pushing that heavy arrow and uh, having that forward, uh, shorter forward lever is definitely essential. It's interesting that Native American hunters were kind of going the opposite route. They were making, they were trying to make uh, small arrows, uh, small cutting heads and very light. So they were really trying to maximize velocity, it seems. Why do you think that is? You know, I, I can't tell you uh, why they went for that, um, with the exception that it did seem to work for them. I mean, they did it for, for a really long time. So it may have had something to do with the way they were hunting, which, you know, they weren't trying to take shots from a uh, distance like we are. Uh, they were trying to get close and uh, they were trying to use uh, mainly a small, fairly light draw maneuverable bows. Uh, and there, there are probably exceptions to that, but that's kind of a general trend that you see. What are your feelings towards distance and archery hunting? Uh, I think that um, the real challenge is should be getting close. It is getting close with traditional equipment. That's what it should be. So, um, you know, I'm perfectly happy to, to limit my range to, uh, 
what I can effectively take a shot at. So, you know, definitely not beyond a 30 yard shot. I'm probably more like a 20 yard shot kind of guy. Yeah, I am too. I use the most technology that you will see on a bow and I still am looking for a 20 yard shot. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's preferable. And and that's what uh, generations of people who hunted for a living were going for. Yeah. So one of the questions that I have um, about these stone heads is that, you know, my very limited understanding is that the actual shape of these heads and, and that their profiles, their aspect ratios, it varies by region. And it, it varies a lot when you change continents, like, you know, these, these heads that I see from, from East Africa are kind of spoon shaped. They're, they're a rounded head that, that Maasai style head is really different in its profile from the stuff that we see in other places that have a straight edge. So mm-hmm. what do you think informed that and and why did different different people who are more or less using the same equipment with with similar materials end up with different technologies yeah or different uh shapes of armatures you could say um it's a really interesting question um from what i found in in experiments i've done on animal carcasses the, uh, these are projectile experiments with atlatls and bows various stone tips on animals that uh, these were domestic animals that died just prior to the experiment. Um, You can, you know, an efficient armature for projectile can come in many shapes. Um, You know, there are definitely uh, things you want to control for the width and the, and the thickness. Um, And of course, like a lancelet shape is supposed to be, the most effective, something like a, a teardrop kind of shape or a diamond kind of shape that uh, reduces the um, the oscillations of the, the material it's passing through uh, against the, sh- the trailing shaft. That's what's really supposed to uh, make a projectile armature more efficient. But um, from what I've seen, once these projectiles penetrate through the skin in particular, and uh, deal with bone if they if they encounter that, and uh, get through muscle. They start punching into the, the organs. Uh, the resistance really drops off dramatically. And uh, so, what I think we we have to contend with is the fact that efficient armatures can come in many shapes and sizes. So you have this window of allowable variation. You know, where if you have if your projectile has plenty of energy to do the task at hand. You know, your the art the shape of the armature is less important, so you can get away with with something that's less efficient, like a wide tip with uh, with barbs jutting out, that sort of thing. So uh, I think that's the main reason why we see so much variation is just because efficient cutting heads come in many shapes. And uh, and then what you've gone to is is more of a delta shape with. Uh with the Tonto point and is the Tonto point to make sure that that tip doesn't bend over. Uh, what I, the reason I'm using that stuff is just because you can purchase them and glue them on the ends of arrows and it's what people are using and it's clearly an effective tip. So, um, you know, if I could, I'd be using stone points, but, uh, I haven't like really sought out 
uh, you know, design controls and the armatures I'm using. Talk to me about, about the atlatl. Um, it's, it's something that, that I, I actually know very little about how, how old it is, different places it was used, um, its effectiveness. And I know it's something that you're passionate about and have played with quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I love this weapon. Um, so they, we don't know precisely when the atlatl was developed. Um, uh, before I launch into that, I'll just explain you know, briefly how it works. You have a lever that extends off of the end of your hand. It's about two feet long and it has a small hook on the end of it. And that engages the tail end of the projectile, which we call a dart in uh, North America. Various uh, different places, they call them spears. I don't really like that term because I like to distinguish these these different weapon systems. So it just helps me to, to think of them in, in those terms, uh, atlatl and dart. So the dart can range anywhere from, you know, five feet long to over 10 feet long. Some really long ones were used in Australia and they, they're flexible. The shaft has to flex in order to compensate for the arcing motion of the throw. So you have this thing when you're holding it, you can just imagine you've, you've got the atlatl, it's, it's horizontal to the ground, the dart slaying across your hand and pointing off to the target. And when you want to throw it, you step forward with your left foot, if you're right-handed, and just swing through with a hard uh, wrist snap. Uh, you don't have to stop your hand abruptly or anything like that. It's just like a full natural throwing motion, and the dart flies off to the target. So these things were invented in the old world. Obviously, we don't know, though, if they were ever used in Africa. The earliest evidence we have of them is 17,000, about 17,500 years ago in Europe, and that's when we actually have uh, these osseous, these antler uh, atlatl hooks that are turning up. So the weapon could be far older than that. And it seems to have been brought into the Americas with the first uh, uh, people who migrated in the Clovis people or the pre-Clovis people, what have you. They, they all seem to have been using this weapon. And so it's been in a, a, an important hunting weapon around the world for a very long time. It wasn't replaced in the Americas till after 2000 years ago when the bow and arrow first appeared. And after the appearance of the bow and arrow in most places in the Americas, the two weapons existed side by side for about a thousand year period. And in some places uh, they were still, the outlet was still in use when colonials first arrived from Europe. So, I thought that the bow was quite a lot older than that. The bow is older in the old world. Um, it was invented. Okay. Uh, well, you know, again, our first evidence occurs sometime around 11,000 years ago in the, in the old world. Interesting. And what are we, what are we calling the old world? The old world is in uh, Europe, Asia, Africa. Got it. So the atlatl would have been a good tool for some of those bigger mammals that were around, um, you know, during and, and after that last ice age, right? Just a general projectile weapon for hunting. Um, we, we don't know if they're hunting small game. Well, I haven't seen specific evidence of hunting small game in, in the old world with it, uh, but they were certainly were hunting small game in the Americas. So we have uh, these blunt tips uh, that, inserted in the ends of atlatl darts in the, in, uh, 
the southwestern U.S., for example, they were hunting rabbits and that sort of thing. So you can hunt, you know, they hunted everything from blue whales to rabbits with these things. And the range potential is, is huge. The range is in the uh, range of what you can hunt or how far you can throw it. Well, I both if we're talking about bunnies and blue whales, but how far can you can you launch one of these things? I can launch them about 70 yards. That's for um, like a hunting style setup. Uh, if you really extend out the outlet all to make it really long and you throw these light, whippy little darts, you can throw them over 200 yards, but they're not accurate. They're not controllable at short range. So for the kind of setup you would use for hunting, hunting and warfare is uh, within 100 yards. That's your max. Um, for accuracy, my max is about 15 yards for like hunting style context. That's still pretty impressive. Are there states where it's legal to hunt with them? There are. It was recently legalized in Missouri and it's been legal in Alaska for, um, you know, forever. Because <laughs> when when uh, the regulations were being made, there were still indigenous people up there who use that tool. So um, Missouri and I, I want to say Alabama, uh, there's a couple different places of states. And um, in most places, you can legally hunt hogs, invasive hogs with them. Have you hunted with it? No, I have not. Because I've um, now that I am living in Colorado, we're just now getting invasive hogs on our property in Arkansas. And I think we'd rather just do away with them totally. But but uh, it's not legal to hunt in Colorado. And when I was hunting in Arkansas, living there, it wasn't legal there either. Gotcha. Well, is it something that you would ever travel to a place so that you could utilize that tech? Yeah, I definitely would. Um, you know, just time and the opportunity hasn't popped up. I would gladly use it to hunt big game uh, here in Colorado, but, you know, forces that be won't allow it. So there you go. I'm so, I'm so interested in this stuff. I kind of got ahead of myself. Um, maybe we should introduce you to, to people and kind of explain who you are and, and how you came by all this knowledge. Sure. Um, I grew up in Arkansas, Northwest Arkansas. Um, you know, my dad was a big, huge outdoorsman, loved hunting and fishing and also collected arrowheads as uh, a lot of country folk do and was really interested in uh, ancient people as well. So, you know, uh, that is what really got me to thinking as a young man about ancient people and, and how they hunted. And I just started wondering, really wondering how in the world did people do this and make a living? So it's just something that has constantly stuck with me, that question of what was life like? And specifically, how did people hunt? How did they get by? So uh, that's what got me started down this path. And, and ultimately I decided to become an archeologist and, and focus specifically on that question. As you've researched this and, and asked this question and more questions, you know, when I, when I introduced this, this, uh, this, what I wanted to know is what lessons modern archers and modern hunters could learn from these things that you've learned, you know, what's been forgotten or has not quite been forgotten yet that, that we could implement in, uh, in our hunting today. Right. 
Yeah, that's a huge question I have. Um, so how are people able to, to be successful with the, the simple weapons that they had available, the simple tools, and actually to be successful enough to make a living off of it? And these people were hunting for a living. So the first thing to really keep in mind is that things have changed drastically since uh, Europeans have colonized this continent. Um, and part of that has to do with with habitat, part of it has to do with species disappearing. Uh, but not only have species disappeared, but the way that we interact with, with the animals has uh, changed drastically. So the world is really a different place. Having said that, we can never completely recapture what, what came before, but we can certainly try and recapture elements of it. So the question I have then is how did they get close enough regularly to to be successful and they were it seems that they were really hunting differently than we do now they weren't climbing up in trees they weren't necessarily stalking game all the time like we you know we generally envision them doing they were uh, pushing animals they were using nets they were using drives they were driving animals past blinds and uh, they were using a method that I've started calling the auto decoy method where you actually dress up as the animal that you're hunting. You disguise yourself and you approach closely to them. So uh, in most cases, people aren't going to want to do that nowadays because you'll get shot, which is one of the reasons why that practice ended. So, um, so there's really a lot of lessons, you know, that's, I'm just barely scratching the surface there. Uh, and I can't say that I, I can tell you all of them. Uh, but I think we need to start realizing that people were, were approaching hunting uh, very differently than we, we generally conceive them as approaching it. And, um, you know, our relationship with the animals is with the prey that we're hunting has changed. So if we could recapture some of the old ways, I would love to, to see them come back. In, in some ways, we also don't want to run a herd of buffalo off a cliff. Yeah, I think that uh, most people would frown on that, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I think that there's, there's lessons to be learned in both ways. And there's some evidence to indicate that the Clovis people um, were pretty devastating to a lot of the populations that they were hunting. That's possible. It's really heavily argued the extent to which they may or may not have overhunted uh, game. I think it's kind of interesting to ask the question, well, what evidence do we see now of the extermination of bison on the Great Plains? Um, you know, you talk about driving buffalo off a cliff. Well, we, we really did uh, a huge number on them. They were, they were extremely numerous, um, but you know, you, to find evidence of that is really challenging. So the fact that we do have evidence of close people hunting big game is really uh, pretty, pretty profound. And uh, they were effective at hunting those animals and they were, they were definitely designing their tools specifically for those jobs. So uh, they, they knew what they were doing. So knowing this and, and feeling about it the way that you do, how is that going to change the way that you approach this upcoming archery season? Well, when I go into the woods, 
you know, I'm, I'm using a combination of, of modern and ancient tactics, modern and ancient tools. And I'm constantly just wondering uh, what life was like and how I can regain some of that ancient knowledge. So I'm just constantly looking for, for information on that. When I go into the elk woods, I'm a little bit comfortable, comforted by the, the fact that you can call these animals in. So to an extent you can use this, this, uh, you know, disguise kind of method where you, you can really get close to uh, the prey that you're hunting. So uh, my goal is to, to get really good at calling the animals, um, really kind of try to understand them. Cause if you're going to disguise yourself as, as the prey that you're hunting, you have to have a really good understanding and really good familiarity with that prey animal. That seems to be a, a common trend when I, when I talk to folks about indigenous hunting cultures that existed and still exist today is that while we want to focus on equipment, the real focus is on knowledge of the patterns and behaviors of animals. Yeah, exactly. This uh, real skill on getting close to those animals. And if you're a hunting culture, if you're a, a culture that lives in a small group, and hunts a vast area, the way those animals are going to respond to you is is uh, pretty different than, than how they respond to us today, especially if you go into the elk woods in Colorado, there's tons of other hunters. So right. that has a huge difference on, on our success rates. What, uh, what's a question that, uh, that you would give modern hunters to be wondering about while they're out there? this year? Well, that's a really good one. Um, I think I would ask them, actually, I'm not even sure what I would ask them. I have to think about that one. Yeah. I, I think there's, there's such interesting juxtaposition between where we're at now and where we used to be. And I, I find it fascinating that we're in a world where we could be out there with a, a cane shafted arrow and a self bow that you split the staves yourself, but yeah. you could also research where you're going to go with satellite imagery. Right. <laughs> I think what it's I freaking really like amazing. To, yeah. Yeah. What I really like people to think about is efficacy and, and uh, what it actually is, the different forms it takes. Um, and, you know, the distance at which you shoot, animals, um, specifically how animals are dying. It's kind of an uncomfortable thing to think about, but you know, uh, a bison falling off a cliff versus a bison getting shot with a modern rifle may not be that much different in reality. So it's, it's definitely something that I think we have to consider, you know, cause we're, we're just so hung up on it, but I feel like in some ways we're not quite coming at it right. And, and how can we change that? Well, you know, anything like this just requires um, really careful thought and an and open mind. So um, it's going to take, in some ways, some really careful research. And in other ways, just having the public be, be open to what, uh, you know, effective hunting is, what efficacy with hunting is. 
Um, I fly over, you know, if I take a plane back to Arkansas, I'm flying over the Great Plains, looking down at an environment that once supported huge herds of bison, herds of elk, pronghorn, deer, and even mountain sheep, as well as the hunters that subsisted on them. And now you see just a patchwork of of farmlands and, you know, agriculture has done some amazing things. Don't get me wrong, but uh, I, you know, people that go to the grocery store and that's where they get all their sustenance and they find hunting to be immoral. I think there's, they really need to start questioning themselves in reality because, uh, you know, what we've, we've done with the world in general is, is a part of that, that efficacy issue. Yeah, I agree. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time. If people want to want to find out more about you and follow along in in this uh, archaeology of archery, where do they uh, where do they go? They can check my Instagram profile ar.atlatl and they can also go to my website basketmakeratlatl.com. Cool. Well, I recommend it. There's some really, really cool imagery on there. Um, I love following that stuff. And I think that there are, there are a lot of lessons um, to be learned that have already been learned and we don't need to discard those. Yeah. And in, in many ways, it's just digging them back up from all those old archives and artifacts. Yeah. And, and literally digging them back up. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, sir. Well, thanks again for your time. I appreciate it. And uh, folks, I'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was edited by Emily Brannigan, with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Artwork for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatterlin and digitized by Celia Christofferson. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to share it with a friend and subscribe. You can find photos and more content on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.